Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Mark Thompson. Get woke. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, we want to talk a bit about work today and what it means, what it meant really before the pandemic and what it means even now. Uh, and just how important it is we think about the conditions under which we work, some of which we may not even be that consciously aware of. My guest today is an associate professor of sociology at the State University of New York at Buffalo. Her research is centered in the sociology of work while also extending into the fields of race and gender, social inequality, culture, labor law, and social policy. Uh, Her first book was entitled The Temp Economy, From Kelly Girls to Permatemps in Postwar America. And her latest book, which we're gonna talk about today, is entitled Coerced Work under threat of punishment. Dr. Aaron Hatton joins us on Make It Plain today. Dr. Hatton, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. So happy to be here. How are you? 
I'm just fine. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, first of all, let me ask how you and your family are, are doing in the pandemic. Hope everyone's healthy and safe. We have been healthy and safe, thank you. And I hope it continues. Okay. Um, well, and, and we hope so for all of us, uh, especially for those of us here in New York in this epicenter. <laughs> Absolutely. So, as I was saying earlier, um, when I looked at your book, you know, I don't know still if people really understand the conditions under which they work. Um, frankly, most folk are just thankful to have a job. Um, and that's going, that's even more real in this pandemic and will be even more real if and when the economy opens up. I'm just thankful to have a job. So that's why I think sometimes it's problematic to get actual workers on the, the front lines, picket lines, the demonstration lines for an increase in the minimum wage because you got to go to work. Um, and, you know, I rarely say middle class anymore. Uh, I rarely say working class anymore. I tend to say more, more nowadays working poor uh, is where we find ourselves. So talk to us about, first of all, the title coerce and coercion. Uh, that's a strong word. When we say that, what do we mean? Um, yeah, it is a strong word. And in point of fact, all of us labor, those of us who work in a capitalist economy, all of us labor under some degree of coercion, different degrees, right? Across different people of different social classes, but we're all laboring under economic coercion, i.e. our bosses have the power to fire us or demote us or promote us. They, they wield this power over us in our wages. And our wages are absolutely necessary to our survival, except for the few people who were born with silver spoons in their mouth. Um, so that's economic coercion. Now this has kind of been long known, been accepted. We kind of largely ignore it and take it for granted. We have as a society put a number of protections in place to mitigate that economic coercion under which we labor. So there's um, unemployment benefits, there's social welfare program, there's food stamps, there's um, workplace injury protections, right? So if something happens at work, there is a smattering of protections that are there to kind of catch us if we fall. They're not very good, they're not very strong, they're not as sturdy as I would like them to be, but they're there. But the type of work that I look at in this book, coerce, work under threat of punishment, they're laboring under a different type of coercion as well. One that I would argue is bigger and more punitive than the economic coercion that most of us labor under. So I interviewed prisoners about their labor behind bars. I interviewed workfare workers. These are welfare recipients who are required to work in order to receive public assistance. I also interviewed former Division I football players and basketball players about their work as student athletes. And finally, I interviewed graduate students, specifically graduate students in the sciences who work in their advisors' labs. And so these are really, really different groups, right? And they're very, very differently disadvantaged. They're very differently vulnerable. They're different in so many levels. But in the book, I argue that they all work under the same type of coercion that's different from economic coercion. I call it status coercion because their bosses have the power, have this type of expansive punitive power over them. So 
uh, real quick for, I don't want to dominate your show, but um, for prisoners, their officers can put them in solitary confinement if they refuse to perform a task or push back in really anyway for not complying with an order, you can be put in solitary confinement. That's an enclosed and segregated cell for 23 hours a day, cut off from the social world, from your family, from your friends, from recreation, from movement, from decent food to eat um, for an unlimited amount of time, which bioethicists define as torture. Um, this is the type of expansive punitive power that bosses behind bars can wield over those workers. Because in point of fact, most prisoners work. Um, in workfare, they can cut you off from the social safety net. For student athletes and graduate students, they can uh, take away your scholarships or your stipends. They can kick you out of school. Therefore, they can cut off your access to an education, whether it's an undergraduate or graduate education, and they have control over your future employment in that field. So this is the broad power that these workers are laboring under. And so in those four categories, you focused on those four. Why did you find that in those categories, those are workers most uh, susceptible to the threat of punishment when we look at our overall workforce? Yeah, that's a good question. So this project definitely evolved as I was undertaking it. I didn't set out to study coercion. I wasn't looking at that really at all. I was interested in workers who are unprotected by labor and employment laws. So like workers who don't get minimum wage, workers who don't get overtime protection and so on. So I started with prisoners, interviewed former prisoners about their labor and then welfare recipients. And as I was interviewing those two groups, the the legal dimension kind of receded from the centerpiece of my focus and the power dynamics that really fundamentally shaped their labor relations came to the fore and the this type of expansive power that their bosses wielded over them so as i was kind of switching around thinking about what i was finding what defined this type of um, power i started looking about for other forms where this might be and I was also interested in looking at different groups, different groups who might experience this in different ways. And that's how I arrived at also interviewing the two student groups of workers. But these aren't the only groups of workers who experience this type of coercion. Um, you could definitely say that um, foreign workers in the US who effectively labor under the threat of deportation. So this would include both foreign guest workers as well as undocumented workers whose employer can kind of quote unquote discover that they are undocumented and have them deported if they file a complaint with OSHA, for example, or if they file a complaint with the Department of Labor. These things can provoke them being deported and separated from their families. That's enormous power that these bosses wield over these workers. And that's the type of status coercion that I'm talking about. So it's not only these four groups of workers. Um, that experience this type of coercion but you can you can see it in kind of high relief in these groups and then look to other sectors of the economy where you would see it as well yeah um let's talk about prison because i think what does stand out for a lot of people what people are becoming more aware of uh, dr hatton is that people work in prison for industries for which they are barely paid and it has even caused people to take a look at the Second Amendment, I mean, not Second Amendment, thir 13th Amendment, and conclude that, you know, th there might have been some fine print in there, 
<laughs> that was overlooked. You know, I don't know. I I think I suspect that that so-called fine print was put in there on purpose. Um, I mean, really, that um, as as we know here, that prison labor is the sole exception to the abolition of slavery in the United States. Um, and people exploited that fine print to effectively re-enslave people who had fought for freedom from slavery in the years after emancipation. Um, and then, you know, that practice declined somewhat, not entirely. Um, and then with this current era of mass incarceration, we see it, we, it's risen once again, because not only are vast numbers of Americans incarcerated in the U.S. today, but those vast numbers of incarcerated people are working behind bars. And so they're working in all sorts of jobs. Most often they work to keep the prison running. They serve food, they keep it clean, they um, do, they mow the lawns and so on. They do all of the work that you would have to hire a lot of civilians to keep those institutions running. And they're doing it in some states for no wages at all. Um, in New York State, where I did my research, they earn between 10 and 33 cents an hour for this work. In addition to that low, almost no pay, what you're also describing, too, is the threat of retaliation, the way the system is able to lower it over them. Um, but give us some examples of that, if you would. Sure. I mean, so there are all sorts of things. Um, you know, by and large, prisoners, like most Americans, believe in the value of work. They believe in the dignity of work. They seek labor. You know, as a culture, we pride, we take a lot of pride in the labor we do. And prisoners are just the same as everyone else. Um, but the problem may arise when they're asked to do something uh, particularly degrading or dangerous. For instance, you know, prisoner says, look, I draw the line when I'm asked to pick up feces, which is a tissue paper or when I'm asked to keep clean up blood from a site without proper equipment, which is dangerous. Or another um, guy that I interviewed had been a pizza. He was working in the mess hall and a pizza had dropped on the floor and then he was told to pick it up and serve it. And he refused. Um, or another guy that I interviewed, he uh, fell asleep in class one day and then the next day he was sick, he apologized, he said it wouldn't happen again. The next day he fell asleep again Actually, he, he said he didn't, but the teacher thought he had fallen asleep. Um, and as punishment, that teacher wanted him to clean the floor with a toothbrush. And he refused. It was too disrespectful. It was too demeaning of a punishment. He refused. He was sent to solitary confinement for 30 days. Um, so if you refuse any of these um, sometimes awful jobs, right? Or if you refuse, another guy said, you know, sometimes they'll be having you clean up the walkway in your boxer shorts. Why would they do that? They're only doing it to demean you. And if you refuse to be demeaned in that way, they can throw you in solitary confinement, which they call the box. They can put you on key block, which means you have to stay in your cell and lose all your privileges. You can't talk to your family. You can be fined a week's worth of wages. And all of this can result in you being not a good prisoner, which means you're not eligible for parole, which means you have to stay in prison longer. Right. These are immense powers that these officers wield over the prisoners. So they basically have to do everything you say in order to just get by, in order to survive, in order to escape physical violence, which also comes with solitary confinement and get out of prison on time to see their families. Yeah. And it's all subjective. It's, it's not fair. Um, 
and and that's you're right is his own punishment it ought to be a fair system where one is eligible for parole or what have you without subjective personalities deciding yes or no whether based on whether or not you cleaned up the floor with a toothbrush i mean that's 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 right that's right i mean so in theory at least in new york state prisons um as a result of the attica uprisings there is a grievance procedure um so so prisoners can file a grievance um but it's uh, there are very low chances for them to succeed it has to go against a written rule which is pretty hard to prove and rare um, and as one of one of the former incarcerated people that I interviewed said, he was like, look, you're grieving the same people who grieved you. What, what good is that going to do? Um, so in all of these workplaces that I study, there's like there's because they're not considered rights bearing workers. There is no one looking over their bosses shoulders, making sure that they're treating them fairly as workers. There's no HR department and HR departments are not that robust anyway, but there's not even that. To where they can go to complain to make sure that that their boss is treating them fairly right right um so let's move to to work fair um not incarcerated but still under threat of punishment um and almost like i mean if, if you you run afoul of them it's almost like um being in prison on the outside isn't it that's right and that's what a lot of the people i interviewed said that they felt like it's, it's, it's like they're being criminalized. They said they're being punished for not having a job. And so when they're out there working, picking up trash on the side of the road, oftentimes in the summer heat is pretty deplorable conditions without water, without anything. Um, they feel like they're on a chain gang, right? They're, they're literally being punished for being down on their luck. It's a very deeply punitive system that we have structured in the US. It's designed to keep, foremost to keep people out, receiving any form of uh, social welfare benefits. Um, and then once people are have kind of made it squeezed into the door to receive some small form of benefits, they are routinely punished and degraded, um, including being forced to do these kind of menial jobs in lieu of being able to find a real job with real wages or get skills to move up the economic ladder. They're being prevented from doing that and being pushed out to public parks or in New York City subway stations to clean up without any access to skills training or real wages. And if you mess up in any way, they'll kick you off of uh, welfare. But it, at the same time, your your lifetime allotment of welfare benefits, your TANF clock, as they call it, will keep ticking. So you lose the benefits you can get, even when you're not getting benefits. And for many of these families, it means they end up homeless. And, and moreover, if you live in New York City and you're sanctioned, you live in a homeless shelter in New York City and you're sanctioned from welfare benefits, you will be kicked out of the homeless shelter and thrown on the street. On the street. Um, I wonder if this, is that even going on in a pandemic? Uh, that's a good question. I know when uh, Mayor de Blasio came into New York City, they, he did eliminate some of the most stringent workfare programs um, I, and I know there have been some kind of stays on housing evictions. I don't know about homeless shelters per se. Okay. okay. Um, and again, this is subjective too. It's left to the whim of the supervisor. That's absolutely right. And so they have a ton of discretion. And this is what people told me over and over again. They were like, look, these people, the corrections officers, the, the welfare um, 
supervisors, they're not all bad. But for those who are bad, there's no check on their power. They're really, really, really bad. And they're, they're in total control. So a, another area that was courageous for you to take a look at, uh, although the public discourse is changing about student athletes. Um, I have a college freshman this fall, if school opens, who's gonna be a student athlete. Um, but we've talked for years about the exploitation of student athletes. Uh, I have a friend who himself has even done a lot of writing on how NCAA March Madness makes more than the Super Bowl and World Series and NBA All-Star Game and all that. And these kids see nothing. Their parents don't even have enough money to go see their children play. But I think it's important what you're highlighting because even in that, it's bad enough that exploitation is going on. But there's also a punitive aspect to that too, isn't it? That's absolutely right. Um, so it is definitely about economic exploitation, right? That's kind of the basis here. Everyone can get a piece of that often very, very large pie from college football and college basketball, except for the athletes themselves. Although that may be under change, but we'll see how that actually plays out. But it's not just that, right? It's also about the power that coaches wield over these players. Um, you know, foremost, I do conceptualize it as a labor relationship. These students are putting in many, many hours of work, um, uh, you know, often much more than the 20 hour maximum that the NC2A says that they're supposed to be putting in. Um, it is widely known that athletics come first, classes come second, and your coaches wield all sorts of power over you. So they can say, push you to not major in whatever you want to major in. As one former football player I interviewed said, he was like, look, you want to be an engineering player? Then you're not going to get to play because engineering um, classes conflict with football practice. You can't do both. Um, you're not going to get to be a football player. You're not going to get to keep your scholarship um, and be an engineering major. So they constrain what you can do. They constrain whether you can play, of course. That's like the basic thing. And these athletes have dedicated them their lives to the sport. And this is for most the apex of their career, right? They're not going to go on to play professionally. This is it. So they have this finite number of games across a finite number of seasons. They can't switch teams. If a new coach comes in, decides on a new strategy and decides not to play them, if they wanted to move to another team where they could play the sport that they love, they'd have to sit out a season. Right. Um, so they have, there's, they're totally, their mobility is completely constrained. Their coaches control whether they play whether they get a scholarship, whether they keep that scholarship, whether they therefore can graduate with a degree, and also for the few who do get recruited to play professionally, um, there's this kind of informal recommendation system operating. So as the athletes told me, they said, you don't want recruiters coming talking to your coaches because they do talk, and your coach saying that you're uncoachable, which they told me meant that you're not submissive, that you're not teachable, that you won't do what they say which they mean everything that they say. So you have to totally comply with your coach, which includes playing through injuries, playing mm -hmm. when you shouldn't be playing. So they're putting sometimes their bodies on the line to play the sport, to do what their coaches say, um, and at sometimes great cost in them, themselves and their futures. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and the impact that has 
uh, in the long run. Um, and, and then I'm sure you also heard too about the punitive nature of practices themselves. And that's subjective. Now people are getting better, especially in football, you know, it's getting better about people being injured and concussions. So you're, you're controlling someone, you're being punitive, but you're also asking them, you mentioned injuries, but you're asking them to risk injury every day. I think it was, and you mentioned this is changing. So folks, hopefully this will change. Universities making money off of a player's name that the player can and his family can make money off of. I think it was the Northwestern case, Dr. Hatton. And they went before a, a, a labor relations judge. And if I remember the story correctly, the judge asked one of the players, how many hours a week do you spend on the football field? And the player said, well, sometimes between 50 and 60. And the judge said, that's a job. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's what kind of opened up the floodgates to, to this new conversation. But if I hear you correctly, even if we get to the place where players receive some compensation, the punitive nature of the environment and of the supervision has to be addressed just like in prisons and in workfare. I would say so. And one of the really kind of interesting dynamics of the sports thing is the rhetoric of privilege that surrounds it. So these athletes are being told again and again and again, you're lucky to be here. You're privileged to be here. In the Northwestern football manual that they gave that year for that case, one of the things that they said was, thousands of kids would crawl through glass to be where you are today. You don't like it, um, leave, right? They're told to either put up or shut up again and again in so many words, often very directly and aggressively, often in like, oh, we're family, we love you, you're so lucky, um, aren't we a team and aren't we happy? Um, and so this rhetoric of privilege is used to silence these workers whenever they try to make claims for rights and protections, which they deserve. Right. You, you wouldn't, so many other people want to be here. You're a star. I'll be honest with you, Dr. Head. Some of these uh, uh, anecdotes you described, the toothbrush crawling through glass, it sounds a little bit like the military, uh, you know, and if you want to be in the military, join the military, right? I mean, you don't go into these other realms and, and decide you're in the military. If you want to be in the military, just join the military and, and be treated that way, I guess. So the other area I know um, uh, that you looked at, now this is, I've never heard of this one before. Graduate students, talk to us about that one. That's right. It is quite different from these other fields in a lot of ways. Um, and one of the ways, of course, is that it's racialized as a white space and a white institution, whereas these other institutions or college athletics are kind of racialized as a black space and a white institution. So the racial dynamics are different. Um, that's one element. But look, most graduate students perform labor as part of their degree. In the sciences, which is where I focus my research, their education, when, when PhD students go to do their PhD work. They're working in their advisor's lab. So they're doing their advisor's research. So their education is also entirely a labor relation. They're one and the same. Um, and all of the research they produce is owned by their advisor. 
Um, in a way, it's a similar dynamic to the student athletes where the coach's success is entirely predicated on how well the athletes perform. Same in graduate school in the sciences. The faculty member's success is entirely predicated on how well their students do. Um, and so they drive them. They're working 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week in the lab as well, just as the athletes are in the field um, to produce for their advisors. And their advisors control everything about their lives, whether they stay in to get their degree, whether once they've become good workers in their fifth or sixth year of their training, whether they can leave and graduate because now they're good workers, their advisors don't want, them, don't want to let them leave. So they don't let them graduate. They just keep them on. And of course, through letters of recommendation, they all have almost total control of whether they can get work in the field. Wow. So, I mean, and obviously in your field, that's close to home. You see some of this firsthand, don't you? Yes. I mean, so in, in, other fields, I'm in sociology, and so in the social sciences, it's a little bit different. It varies by department. I don't have students doing my research for me in the same way. So we do have students who work as our TAs, and they are officially working under me. It is always a relationship defined by this type of coercion that I'm talking about, but it's not usually a labor relationship. So they're not doing my work, basically. In the sciences, they're almost you always have students working directly under and for and producing for their advisors. And obviously you touched on it, um, the racial component in, in each of these areas. But uh, to just go back a little bit, what about the gender component in, in all of this? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there are, um, you know, each of these kind of labor relations and then the institutions which house them are racialized and gendered in different ways. Right. So you can conceptualize the, the criminal justice system and the welfare system as these two um, institutions, which are often paired, really. Um, they have both been racialized as black since roughly the 1960s and 70s in American culture. They were not always racialized as such, because, in fact, um, um, until then, black people and black women specifically were kept out of the welfare system. So once we're allowed in, then it became racialized as black. The criminal justice system also with mass incarceration became racialized as black, um, but they're gendered separately. So the welfare is feminized, criminal justice system is masculinized. Of course, within these institutions, you find all different types of people, right? Both men and women receive welfare. Both men and women are incarcerated and people of all races. Uh, in fact, the majority of people who get welfare assistance are white, right? That's important to note. But in our public imagination, we see these as black institutions. And I argue in the book that this, this racialization, this, I don't know what the word is, blackification of these institutions, it helps um, inform the, the punishments that are deemed reasonable in those spaces. So because um, we prison is a space for these horrible black criminal men, then it's okay to put them in solitary confinement indiscriminately. Right. And same for welfare, because welfare is seen as being populated by presumed to be fraudulent black women, which are all myths, by the way, born out. By the queen. Right. By the welfare queen. This is the myth. Um, but because we believe that, then it is seems to be reasonable that we indiscriminately kick them off of welfare um, if they're if they miss a meeting with their social uh, worker. Yeah. So. Um, professor, would I also would I be wrong to 
hypothesize, though, that with the racialization, even white prisoners or white workfare workers, women and men, are also mistreated. But because it's so racialized, they're kind of overshadowed in that. So I can be the supervisor that can mistreat them and, and too. But what are you going to say? Nobody's going to believe it because some folk don't even believe white folk are, are in prison or on welfare to begin with. That's right. That's right. And that's exactly what I argue. So that because the rules and policies in these spaces have been set up because of the cultural racialization of these spaces, so that everyone within them experienced the same type of punishments. Right. That said, there is very clearly demonstrated discrimination within these systems as well. So not everyone is treated equally, um, but it's still on the books that you're going to be put in solitary confinement if you don't comply with an order. Um, so that that rule is endorsed by the racialization of the criminal justice system, but it may not be evenly dispensed across different races. What can we do about this? Well, uh, that is a million dollar question. Um, there are certainly lots of levels of change that could be implemented. Um, you know, at the most modest level, we need, um, we need uh, robust grievance procedures for all of these groups, places where these workers can go to if workplace abuse is happening. Um, someone who is in fact looking over the shoulder of their bosses to make sure that basic levels of worker mistreatment are not taking place, which they do every day in these workplaces, more so than in traditional workplaces, although workplace abuse and harassment are quite common. Um, but of course, you know, as we've been talking about in more, uh, once again, really in the public sphere more recently, is that the criminal justice system itself is profoundly problematic and really needs to be fundamentally changed. Like a, a robust grievance procedure is just not going to really do the, do the, do enough to change all of the problems stemming from racism and more that, um, that really need to be addressed to make it better, to make it a more just and humane system. Yeah, yeah. And and what about what about the workfare system? That that's kind of uh, is correct me if I'm wrong, but but well, I guess the prison system is too. You know, so many of these things are state by state, aren't they? And see, that's what makes it difficult. You know, we talk about even dealing with the police. You know people often find out that the police are governed very, very locally. <laughs> and so when we talk about a national movement to deal with police accountability, there is no uh, national uh, uh, oversight to do that. I mean, all of these things have to happen right where they are. Is, is that the same when we talk about workfare somewhat? Well, it's both federal and state. I mean, TANF, uh, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, is a federal policy. It's a federal structural structure in place. And then states have, but it, that policy gives states a lot of leeway in its implementation. Um, so yes, but TANF itself as a federal law is incredibly punitive. It's predicated on the presumption of fraudulence, of lack of personal responsibility among um, uh, welfare recipients. I mean, our whole system really is based on the idea that some programs um, 
are for good people, moral people, like um, college loans, which are welfare assistance, um, which I got to go to college and I'm still paying off today, many, many years later. Um, but that's not framed in our culture as social welfare, right? So that's seen as a good program for deserving people. But these other programs, food stamps, cash benefits, utility vouchers, and so on, they're seen as essentially bad programs for undeserving people. And because we made that division, we routinely de-invest, disinvest from one and invest or at least hang on to the other ones. And this whole structure is problematic. So what, what we really need is kind of a basic structural change, which would also coincide with a cultural change because we need to change our fundamental attitudes about, um, well, about race, but also just about our presumptions of the criminality of people who need assistance, of the poor. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Big change has to happen, obviously. Folks, we invite you to read the book by Dr. Hatton, Work Under Threat of Punishment. Uh, there is a lot to be done. There's plenty as we are in this moment of reckoning in America, so to speak, there are a lot of corners where justice uh, needs to be called for, not just in the police department, but in all of the areas, uh, at least here are four more that Dr. Hatton has pointed out to us. And um, so there's plenty of good freedom fighting work to go around, you know. Uh, Dr. Haddon, thank you for your work and your con very important contribution to this discourse and also focusing on those who, you know, in, in the mainstream coverage do kind of get overlooked. So really appreciate that, too. OK, thank you. Thanks so much for having me here today. What's your next book about? Oh, gosh, that's a good question uh, to be determined. But I think I'm going to at least start with a small project on. Uh, people who have to work are compulsory labor for um, drug rehab programs. Interesting. That's interesting, too. Very good. Very good. Uh, Dr. Aaron Haddon, our guest. Thank you, Dr. Haddon. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. You too. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.